0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. I am back after a two-week hiatus. I took a couple of weeks off to travel and also to spend Thanksgiving with my family. And I hope all of you out there had a great Thanksgiving as well. And with the two weeks off, I also have a little bit of a problem, which in my case is kind of a good problem to have. I have seen a lot of movies. I mean, I, I didn't spend all my time at the movies during my two weeks off, but I've seen more than I can review for this show. So, it's a good problem to have because I don't run out of anything to talk about. However, I'm going to have a surplus of films to review for you next week, but I might as well get to one of the newest films that I've seen that is probably going to be the most, uh, the biggest success because it is the most family-friendly. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Wish, and this is the latest animated film from the Walt Disney Animation Studios, Walt Disney Studio Motion Pictures, and it is a film that is actually unlike a a lot of the films that people critique from Disney. This is an original story. It's obviously not the first Disney film, let alone the first Disney animated film, to be based on a, a... an original story, but it comes from the minds of Jennifer Lee and Allison Moore, who wrote the screenplay and the story, with contributions to the story by Chris Buck and Fawn Vera-Sunthorne, who also directed the film. And... Because this film is not based on any previous source material, I have to do a little, I have to make a little bit more of an effort to describe to you what the plot of the movie is. But it is a movie about a young girl, and by a young girl they mean someone who's 17. Her name is Asha, and she is voiced in this movie by Ariana DeBose, the Academy Award winner from West Side Story, um, uh, the remake of West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg. And she wishes on a star and gets a more direct answer than she bargained for when a troublemaking star comes down from the sky to join her. And that is actually the synopsis that's given to me here, but there is a lot more to the story than that. For instance, there is a king in the, in the movie whose name is King Magnifico, who's voiced by Chris Pine. It's not the first time that Chris Pine has played royalty in a film. It's not the first time he's played royalty in a Disney film. And it's also not the first time he's played sort of a bad guy who's a a member of royalty in a Disney film. He did both in the movie Into the Woods. He wasn't exactly a villain in Into the Woods, but yeah, he had a bad streak to him. And you realize that during the last third of that film. But anyway, King Magnifico establishes a kingdom by the name of Rosas on an island in the Mediterranean Sea. And this exposition about him establishing this kingdom on an island is spoken. It's it's told through one of those kinds of expositions that we're used to from some of the earlier Walt Disney films, particularly the Walt Disney animated films where there's a book and the narrator is turning pages and telling you about how this kingdom came to be. But honestly... That establishment of a kingdom in an island in the Mediterranean Sea would alone make an excellent film, I, I would imagine, if it was done right. But anyway, King Magnifico is not only a member of royalty, he's also studied sorcery, and he's able to grant the greatest desires of his subjects. And each of them are to give up a memory of their wishes to be sealed and protected by the king until he can grant them. And he has a ceremony where once a month... He chooses one wish amongst the people over whom he presides to be granted, and honestly, that part of the story really felt lopsided to me, and it didn't make a ton of sense because I was watching the film and I was thinking, does everyone just have one wish, and also why is if, if this one wish is extracted? From this King Magnifico, couldn't they just make another wish? Because I know, I don't think there's a single human being on this planet who has just one wish that defines them. And also, why is the wish linked to a memory? And also, if you have this wish, why don't you wish for this wish to be granted? That was probably my biggest issue with with this film in general. And it's really too bad because the character of Asha, who I'd said previously was voiced by Ariana DeBose, is a really great character. I mean, she's fun, she's quirky. There are times where she could be very funny. But also, if the story doesn't work, unfortunately, the character doesn't really work as well. And there are also some other uh, friends of hers in this film. In fact, that's another problem with this film. She has too many friends, too many supporting characters, and unfortunately because of that, there are a number of characters here who just largely remain silent in the background. Her primary best friend is somebody by the name of Dahlia, who's voiced by Jennifer Kumiyama, who is a chef for King Magnifico. And it's through that connection with Dahlia that Asha is able to secure an interview with Magnifico to become his assistant. And that's all well and good, but I do think that if the issue with the story about the wishes and how people only have one wish was more examined, then this film wouldn't be full of plot holes and therefore Asha wouldn't be uh would be a a more dominance or a better character as a result. But I think with what the character is given, she actually is a really good character. But then again, she does make a wish. What that wish is, even though she's singing when she makes the wish, is not very clear because apparently when she makes this wish, a star comes down from the sky and has this persona that reminded me of the video game character Kirby. And it's kind of hard to explain to people who aren't familiar with Nintendo characters, but basically, this character is a little bit roly-poly, and it's cute, but it doesn't really have very much of a personality, and it's also not explained very well what the star can actually do for Asha or many of the other characters in this film. In fact, there's one superpower that the star has, which is Shown rather than told to this movie's credit, but in the end it doesn't really amount to very much. The star can actually grant non-anthropomorphic animals, in other words, actual animals, the ability to talk. And there is a pet goat that Asha has that once that star gets the goat to start talking, the goat can't really shut up. And that's really unfortunate because you kind of know that the goat is supposed to be the comic relief, but it's probably one of the weakest supporting characters in an animated film, especially a Disney animated film. It speaks very distinctly, kind of like uh, Simon Callow, but unfortunately, it has the ability like Ryan Reynolds to not shut up. And that's unfortunately, well, very unfortunate because Wish is very brilliantly animated. As I said, I loved the character of Asha, and I do think that if this was a film that was about King Magnifico creating a kingdom, and Asha was a character in this, not necessarily voiced by Ariana DeBose, but I'm just saying, that probably would have made a a better film, instead of having this system of wishes that are given and taken from the people in exchange for security which is a good storyline for a dystopian story not necessarily a dystopian thriller but one that is kind of like a a place where everything seems perfect but there's something underlying underneath the surface that is shall we say rancid but the 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 system of wishes here for a movie that's called wish should have been better established. And it's really unfortunate because not only is this a Disney film where Disney really has to keep up its own game, which it's been establishing for the last literally 100 years, probably 90 years when it comes to Disney animated features, it really has to do that. Plus, with a budget of 175 to 200 million, you can see from the film where that budget went. And the animation in this film is excellent. In fact, it's a really clever CGI kind of animation where it's obvious that all the characters, whether they're human or animals, are CGI animated, but the background actually really reminded me of a hand-drawn story, kind of like you'd see in classic Disney films like Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. But unfortunately, the story here didn't make a ton of sense. The star that came down to... I guess, help Asha with her predicament wasn't really very clever and also was really vaguely shown in addition to being vaguely told and Wish is a miss in terms of the Disney films, and this movie comes out at a time when people are being critical of Disney, not everyone, but certain people are being critical of Disney for making films that aren't original. This film is original, it's based on an original story, but it really had a basis for a story that really needed to be fleshed out, and for that reason, Wish gets my rating of a strikeout. It's a film that definitely swings for the fences, but unfortunately it is a miss because of its story. And that's really too bad because I thought that Ariana DeBose did a great job voicing the character of Asha. And Asha is definitely the best character here. She's the most fleshed out. But unfortunately, when you have a story that's not fleshed out, regardless of how great the animation is, there honestly really isn't a lot to say. Plus, they crammed in way too many supporting characters, a star that was probably more obnoxious than it was magical, and also some comic relief that did not know when to shut up. I can't quite recommend wish for this show and it's really mind-blowing to me because I never thought I would not recommend a Disney animated film. Disney is usually better than this, especially when it comes to storytelling. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Trolls Band Together. This is the third of the feature-length Trolls films that were that are released by DreamWorks Pictures. The first Trolls movie came out in 2017 and was a big hit. I saw that movie and I liked it very much, plus I loved the music in it. And then there was a sequel in 2020 that was called Trolls World Tour, and that came out at a very, very bad time, not for the movie necessarily, but for the world. It was released on streaming. It was originally supposed to be released in theaters in April of 2020, but there is a very big and very rational reason why it was not, because of the pandemic. And I did not actually get to see Trolls World Tour when it premiered on streaming, but when I saw Trolls Band Together, it seemed like an episodic enough plot where if you saw the first Trolls movie, like I did, you wouldn't be lost. You kind of know about the characters of Poppy, who's voiced by Anna Kendrick, and Branch, who's voiced by Justin Timberlake. And it doesn't seem like there was a lot in the movie Trolls World Tour that I missed. But in this film, we find out a little bit more background about the characters of Poppy and Branch. One, you find that Poppy actually has a sibling about whom her father didn't tell her, and you also find out that Branch, Justin Timberlake's character, was part of a boy band that was known as Brozone that consisted of other trolls that apparently were a big hit until they broke up, which is very familiar in terms of Justin Timberlake's life and music career as it is. However, there is a way that Justin Timberlake's background in boy bands is actually cheapened by some cameos in this film at the end that I honestly think should have been the primary focus of this film. But anyway, there are four other members of, or four other former members of Brozone besides Branch, There is John Dory, who's the oldest of Branch's brothers, and the former leader of Brozone, who's voiced by Eric Andre. There's also the second oldest brother, Spruce, who's voiced by David Diggs, and Spruce goes by the name Bruce after he leaves the music life behind him and surfs and also raises a family. There's also Clay, the third oldest brother, who's voiced by Kid Cootie, and there's Floyd, the fourth oldest brother, who's voiced by Troy Sivan. Now, at the very end of the film, it's re- it's revealed that Branch actually joined another boy band, which isn't revealed anywhere in this film or any in any of the other two films. That boy band is called Kismet, and the voices of the other members of Kismet are Lance Bass, J.C. Chazet, Joey Fatone, and Chris Kirkpatrick. If you know anything about music, particularly late 90s music, you know that those other four members or those other four actors, were former members of Insync, And there have been hints and speculations that those four members and Justin Timberlake would reunite, but that hasn't happened, except for on stage here and there, for over 20 years. But I really honestly thought that if you were going to have the other four members of Insync be a part of this film, then why weren't they members of Brozone? I would imagine if I was any of the former Insync members, like Joey Fatone or Lance Bass, for example, I would feel cheated. I'm not necessarily saying that's Justin Timberlake's fault. It may be, it might not be, but my guess is the producers just brought in the members of Insync for a cameo, but really cheated them out of actually having a more dynamic role in this film. And the other members of the group, Boyzone, the actors who voice the characters, Eric Andre, David Diggs, Kid Cootie, and Troy Sivan, may have more on-screen acting experience than the members of Insync, but it's not as if the other four members of NSYNC have zero acting experience. They've acted in other things before playing characters other than themselves. So, I kind of rubbed me the wrong way there, but the plot of this movie is that one of the members of the group, Floyd, has actually been uh, kidnapped by this duo of almost kind of like anime giants that uh, take their his power and use that for their own musical ability, and I did like, actually, the design of these uh, giant characters, who also, they were a brother and sister group, kind of like Donnie and Marie, except with a lot more anime and maybe some uh, K-pop influence there, but I liked their dynamic, and they also made pretty effective villains, not to mention that they were designed very creatively. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest strengths of Trolls Band Together, like the Walt Disney film wish is that the animation in this film is excellent. Certainly the world design is very creative, but also some of the very small details like the hairs on the faces of the trolls uh, is um, amazingly well done. And I also thought the overall um, design of the other characters were also very well done. And it seemed like even though this film was completely animated by way of CGI, I really thought some of the other characters, not necessarily the Trolls, but some other species of characters here, worked very well the way they were designed, but they also looked like stop-motion animation characters, just from the intricacies of how well they were designed. So anyway, this movie, Trolls World Tour, I went in having very little expectations for it, but the movie itself actually kind of blew me away in terms of the animation. I did think that some of the moments in this film that required dialogue had some of the other characters, especially Anna Kendrick and Keenan Thompson, who the latter of whom voices a little troll by the name of Tiny Diamond, just filling in those blanks with dialogue and some jokes that I think probably eight times out of ten don't land very well. And sometimes this movie just needed a breather. Sometimes it gets it in some of the more dramatic parts, but a lot of times, some sometimes the movie, even in some of its most dynamic and funny parts, needed to breathe sometimes. But... I did think that the film worked a lot more than it didn't, and I'm actually kind of amazed that I'm giving this movie a better rating than I did the movie Wish, but this film had a story that really worked. It's just, it's too bad that Justin Timberlake's background with boy bands resulted in four of his other former boy band members basically making a cameo, and they should have made a bigger splash than that. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm giving Trolls Band Together my rating of a checkout. I do think that, very much like eating candy a lot of times, it feels like this movie is so sugar-coated and so sweet that you just need a break with vegetables, which fortunately... I get in, in the sort of metaphorical sense when I watch a more serious movie. But I do think that the movie is very well animated. The design is very dynamic and creative. Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake voice their characters very well. But I just think this movie did a disservice to the other former members of NSYNC. Plus, it was a little too sugar-coated, a little too sweet sometimes, but I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, and it actually had some quality marks that put it at a higher level than Disney's film Wish, which I did not expect. on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is May, December. This is a film that is directed by Todd Haynes and premiered on Netflix on December 1st. It also premiered in select cities and in also some art house movie theaters the week after Thanksgiving. And I actually saw it on the big screen at my favorite theater here in Nashville, Tennessee, the Belcourt Theater. And I was watching this film, and actually, I watched the end credits, and and normally I try to watch the end credits not only because I might miss a bonus scene at the end, but also to get a feeling for the thousands, literally thousands of people who worked on the film. I don't obviously remember anyone's name, but it's a way to remind me that movies are a group effort. It's not just the director, it's not just the screenwriter, it's not just the handful of actors. There are lots of other people who do lots of other jobs that are underappreciated in terms of the grand sense of the viewing audience, but also that it takes a lot of people to make such a film, and without their jobs, there probably wouldn't be a film. But I also watched the end credits of May, December for one particular disclaimer, which says, This is a work of fiction. Any similarities to persons living or dead or actual events is purely coincidental. And I was looking for it in this film in particular, this film, May December, for a reason, because <clears throat> this film is about a married couple who have been married for 20 years, but they were married after a notorious tabloid romance. And they buckle under pressure when an actress arrives to do research for a film about their past. And the reason this couple's marriage was a tabloid scandal is because Gracie, who's played by Julianne Moore, was in her 30s when she met Joe Yu, who's played by Charles Melton, when he was about 12. And she was his teacher. And the two of them, when he was 12, had an affair that resulted in Gracie spending some time in prison. And if this story sounds familiar to you, it is unfortunately one of those truths that are stranger than fiction. But the movie actually acknowledges that this is loosely based on the story of Mary Kay Letourneau, who in the mid-1990s was an American sex offender and teacher who pleaded guilty in 1997 to two counts of felony second-degree rape of a child. And pretty much, she she had um, an extramarital affair with a young boy in her sixth grade class. And the details of this case were yeah disturbing. No matter what age you were, when this happened, and especially when you're older, you can see that this this relationship was cringeworthy, and also virulently inappropriate. But Mary Kay Letourneau did, after she was released from prison, and after the child with whom she had an affair got older, actually did marry, um, and <clears throat> they were in a marriage that lasted 14 years, and they had two children, actually outside of this marriage. Then they were separated in 2019, but in 2020, Mary Kay Letourneau actually died uh, of cancer, which is unfortunate. And also, this film probably did the right thing by, rather than retelling the story of Mary Kay Letourneau and her flagrantly inappropriate extramarital affair, has... Uh, An actress by the name of Elizabeth, who's played by Natalie Portman, come in to not only research her character and the people who know, love them, and also may hate them, just to get a sense of what their life was like, but she also kind of represents the audience in the sense that... She's looking into a very unconventional relationship and an unconventional marriage, not just based on the age gap between the husband and wife, but also based on the circumstances that began this relationship, which are, well, at at best, tacky, and at worst, morally reprehensible. But I guess the fact that they are married a little while later eases the at-worst scenario here. But it raises a lot of interesting questions about what love means and what, rather, it means when love conquers all. Or is that something that actually applies to this kind of relationship? Or is it one of those covers that, unfortunately, doesn't really, they're just vaguely condones this relationship. It raises a lot of very interesting questions and the three principal actors in this film are excellent. Julianne Moore plays this role that's probably the most difficult here because she plays someone who is considered for the rest of her life a sex offender, but you kinda wonder, is she coming to grips with the fact that she is a sex offender or is she using the term love conquers all to justify that? And you also have the character of Joe Yu, who's probably played by the least familiar actor of the three here, Charles Melton, and you're also kind of wondering, and maybe it's sort of wondering vicariously through Natalie Portman's character, if the marriage between the two of them was worth it, or if he should not have gotten into this relationship based on, well, the scandal that ensued firsthand, and also the fact that at 12 or 13, his brain was still developing. Everybody's brain is still developing at that age. And also, Natalie Portman's character, Elizabeth here, is playing an actress that's similar to Natalie Portman in real life, except for the fact that her character is experienced more on stage and on TV than she is on film. That's the primary difference, because Natalie Portman has acted a lot more in films than she has on stage and on the small screen. So, And also, her character in this film was educated at Juilliard, whereas Natalie Portman in real life went to Harvard. So, there's some... Notable differences there, but I think people who don't know Natalie Portman's background probably won't see too much of a difference here. But it also has sort of a moral conundrum for Natalie Portman's character here is her research she's doing... For the legitimate reason that she's researching for a role in a movie that's going to be brought to the big screen that's based on a true story. Is that movie going to be exploitative? You don't exactly know because the movie hasn't even started filming yet. She's just doing her research ahead of time. Or is research one of those things that's pretentious for actors to do? That's another moral conundrum here that Natalie Portman's character has to face, especially when she's doing research and getting to know some of the people in the community in which Gracie and Joe live, particularly their children, Charlie Atherton Yu, who's voiced, or rather, who's voiced, who's played by Gabriel Chung, and Mary Atherton Yu, who's played by Elizabeth Yu. Both of them are, have to come to grips with the fact that they were born in the middle of a scandal. And Natalie Portman being there, or Natalie Portman's character, I should say, being there to do research on them might make them feel exploited and might also break up some old coals about the fact that they were born into scandal. And that makes things probably very awkward for them, especially since they didn't enter into witness protection. And you really don't know what it's like to be children who were born into that kind of thing unless you've walked a mile in their moccasins. And there are also some other members of the community like Gracie's ex-husband, who not only has to relive the scandal that caused him to divorce his wife of however many years, but also the fact that he went into a marriage like anybody goes into a marriage, thinking that this would last forever and did not imagine that it would end in the kind of scandal that it would. So May-December has a lot of moral questions at play, and everyone in this movie acts incredibly well. Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman in particular um, hold this film to a, great height in terms of their acting, and also the moral conundrums that they face, and there are many questions, moral questions, that you ask yourself as you're watching this film. And it's also not entirely sad, depressing, or overly dramatic. There are some funny moments in this film that make it seem real, which is why I give May-December my rating of a knockout. I think it's one of the best films of the year so far. It's a film that is going to make you uncomfortable regardless of your background and your views on relationships that are unconventional like this. And by unconventional, I mean borderline illegal or were at one point illegal. And I certainly have my views on relationships like those of Mary Kay Letourneau's, which wasn't the first kind of statutory rape rape relationship. And it sadly won't be the last either. But May-December is a film that makes you think, and it also holds you in awe as you're watching the film. (music) Thank <music> you. To Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Family Switch, which premiered on Netflix on November 30th, a Wednesday. And it's a film that's a Christmas movie, and it is also essentially Freaky Friday. It's a film where there is a family of five, six of you include the dog, who have a chance encounter with an astrological reader that causes them to wake up to a full body switch. So the matriarch of the family switches bodies with the daughter, the patriarch of the family switches bodies with the son, and in a gag that should have been funny but ended up being really, really disturbing, the baby of the family switches bodies with the dog. I'll get into that, the creepiness of it, a little bit later. This movie is directed by Mick G., who's had some varying success as a director. This is probably his most family-friendly and, I might say, his most formulaic film as of yet. But the family includes Jess, who is an architect, who's played by Jennifer Garner, Bill, a music teacher who once had glory days of being a rock star, who's played by Ed Helms, You also have the athletically gifted CeCe, who's played by Emma Myers. You have the autistic savant son Wyatt, who's very brilliant, who's played by Brady Noon. And you also have their baby son Miles, who's played by twins Lincoln and Theodore Sykes. And the uh, astrological reader who meets them and causes them to switch bodies, is a woman by the name of Angelica who's played by Rita Moreno. And you can sort of tell when you see this family, the individual members of this family's talents and also the fact that they have a big day the next day. For example, Jennifer Garner's character has a big presentation that can make or break her career. Emma Meyer's character is in a big soccer game where there's a scout who is looking at her for the American team. You also have the son who's interviewing for Yale, and you know that's gonna happen the next day, and you know that the body switches that's gonna happen is gonna inconvenience all of that, and you know when you see this astrological reader who is taking a picture of the six family members for a Christmas photo, she's gonna have some hand in them switching bodies. But as I was watching this film, I know that Ed Helms usually plays the goofy dad, and Jennifer Garner usually plays the suburban mom. They're both typecast in those roles, and they play those roles very well. But Rita Moreno in this film as the psychic, I kind of felt like anybody could have played that role, because Rita Moreno, I feel like, is so much better an actress than this. And as I saw was watching this film, I was thinking, come on, Rita, you have you could do better than this. I've seen you do better than this. But at the same time, Rita Moreno, who is in her early 90s, is still getting acting roles, and I can't fault her for that. But this movie is very formulaic, it's very predictable, and there are some slapstick gags that do not work very well. As a matter of fact, the exposition that takes place before this family switches bodies sets up those gags. For example, you find out uh, moments before they switch bodies that Jennifer Garner's character is lactose intolerant. So if she consumes any dairy products of any kind, she's gonna get gas. So when Emma Meyer's character inhabits Jennifer Garner's body, she eats a lot of ice cream before a presentation, so you know a fart joke's gonna come on. And there's also a scene where Emma Myers inhabiting Jennifer Garner's character actually has Jennifer Garner fall down the stairs. And I don't know why there are films that have Jennifer Garner doing slapstick, because she can't do slapstick. I mean, slapstick involves a certain kind of physical prowess as a comedic actor. And Jennifer Garner doesn't have that. It doesn't mean she's not a good actress. She just can't do slapstick. And that's evidenced, I think, from her previous... Uh, Netflix film called Yesterday, which I otherwise thought was a very funny film, and Jennifer Garner was actually very good in that, except in the scenes which required her to do this physical slapstick. Also, Jennifer Garner and Emma Myers, when they try to imitate the other person, they just don't really act like the other character particularly well. I felt like Jennifer Garner sort of when she was supposed to be inhabited by Emma Myers' character acted more like a stereotypical teen or the way in which an adult would think a teen would act these these days than she did somebody who is legitimately imitating Emma Myers and Emma Myers kind of did the opposite in terms of acting like what a general Zer would think that their Gen X or millennial parents would act like. I did, however, think that Ed Helms and Brady Noon did well sort of inhabiting each other's character traits. I thought they did that very well. I thought Brady Noon, when he was supposed to be Ed Helms acting like him, acted very much like Ed Helms, and Ed Helms did the opposite for Brady Noon. But then you get to that visual gag involving the baby of the family who switches bodies with the dog. There are scenes where the baby acts like a dog that are done in CGI, border on the uncanny valley, and are very, very disturbing. For example, there are scenes where the baby is licking from out of a dog's dish and also using a chew toy and walking on all fours that are supposed to be funny But they ended up being really, really scary, really scary. I mean, my God, I I just felt less like I was watching a a family comedy and more like I was watching something really creepy like Son of the Mask or Cats. And the the former film of which, there was a CGI baby that was supposed to have powers like the mask, and I haven't seen the movie Son of the Mask, but I've seen clips of it, and those scenes where the baby is acting like a cartoon character are really, really scary. And this movie kind of echoes that. So, Family Switch is a film that is very formulaic in terms of what the family learns about one another when they switch bodies. It's very predictable, considering that it takes place a few days before Christmas. You know that they're going to switch bodies again back to their old selves by Christmas Day, and that's exactly what happens. They solve each other's problems, and so on and so forth. Family Switch is largely Freaky Friday, but unlike the original Disney film, And also, unlike the 2003 big screen remake with Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan, this movie isn't quite as clever, and it's actually a lot more predictable than those films, which is why I give Family Switch my rating of a low strikeout. The reason I'm not giving this movie a flunk out is because I do think it has its heart in the right place. I do think some of the talent involved here works very well. For example, Ed Helms and Brady Noon are probably the best things about this film, in terms of the fact that they actually make the most out of their quirky characteristics and actually echo each other's characters very well. But the really disturbing CGI with the baby made me want to hate quit this movie, but not so much that I'd give it a flunk out. To Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Dream Scenario, which is an original film, and by that I mean not only was it not based on any book or any source material like that, but it's also a very unique concept, and the director of this film, who also wrote the story and the screenplay, is Christopher Borgli, who is a Norwegian director, and his previous feature film effort was sick of myself. So this is not his debut feature film, but it is his breakthrough film in the United States. And it is about a hapless college professor and a family man whose name is Paul Matthews, who's played here by Nicolas Cage, whose life is turned upside down when millions, literally millions of strangers, suddenly start seeing him in their dreams. And eventually, those dreams turn into nightmares, and it takes a nightmarish turn for Paul when he is forced to navigate his newfound stardom. And this is a kind of film that I think is perfect for Nicolas Cage, not particularly because he plays more of a hapless everyman. And in this film, Nicolas Cage shaves the top part of his head so it looks like he has male pattern baldness, and he grows a beard, so he is somewhat unrecognizable, or at least at first glance, and he is also an unassuming, loving husband to Janet, who's played by Julianne Nicholson, and also two daughters named Sophie and Hannah, who are played by... Lily Bird and Jessica Clement, respectively. But it's kind of interesting because he begins to appear in other people's dreams, at first in the dreams of people whom he actually knows or who he has known. And in these dreams, they they at first follow a constant where it's a nightmare scenario where someone is hurt or seriously injured, and he appears in their dreams as a bystander who doesn't speak to them, but also doesn't interact with them in any way, except maybe to wave at best. And he becomes almost a celebrity from appearing in other people's dreams. There is no explanation for how his likeness appears in dreams, but there doesn't really need to be. Kind of like the Bill Murray film Groundhog Day, it probably works better for the story if there's no explanation for this phenomenon And I think that actually works very well for this film. I think if there was some kind of genie or a gypsy who makes him appear in these kinds of dreams, that would probably cheapen the story. But the point of the story is not how he appears in dreams. It's sort of the cult of personality and reception he gets from this newfound fame. And it would have been neat if Jimmy Kimmel had actually made a cameo in this film and brought Nicolas Cage's character onto his show, because Jimmy Kimmel is the late night talk show host who is usually the first to interview a lot of these sort of odd people and people who become celebrities for very weird reasons. And he's usually the first to get to kind of these celebrities more than Stephen Colbert and especially Jimmy Fallon, the latter of whom usually gets the A-list celebrities and extracts some good comedy bits out of them, I might add. But then again, I think if Jimmy Kimmel were to make a cameo in this film, as himself, it might actually make this film a little bit more funny than it could be because it is a dark comedy and it is a satire, but I think it's a very sharp satire that works very well. There are some parts of this film that are deadpan but are also screamingly funny, and there are other parts of this film where these dreams in which Paul Matthews, Nicolas Cage's character, appears take a very dark and nightmarish turn, and you begin to really feel for Paul Matthews as a character. And Nicolas Cage doesn't play this character over the top like he does sometimes, but he also doesn't play the character as boring either. And Nicolas Cage has had some varying effects with his kind of intense acting, but here, I think when he's angry, he does maybe seem over the top, but I think his anger is appropriately expressed here, especially when his celebrity fades a little bit and his notoriety increases. And there are ways in which his notoriety increases that I won't give away here, but I will say that it is a very good supernatural development here. So, I really enjoy Dream Scenario. I think it's one of the most original films of the year, and I don't know if it's going to be considered Nicolas Cage's comeback film, because Nicolas Cage has made dozens of films over the last couple of years, and some of them were very promising. Like, for instance, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which was both a dark comedy and also a satire on Nicolas Cage's life and on-screen persona. And that film, I think, could have made Nicolas Cage given him the comeback he deserved, but it was lacking in some storytelling efforts. Here, this movie Dream Scenario is a smaller film, but I think that Nicolas Cage brings his A-game, not just his over-the-top acting, but his his best acting to such a quirky role like this. The reason I don't think it'll be his comeback film is because I think it's a little too small, but I do think that Nicolas Cage is on the cusp of a comeback, and I think a film like Dream Scenario is an encouraging sign of a comeback. But Dream Scenario gets my rating of a knockout. I thought this film, in just about every scene, was nearly pitch perfect. Nicolas Cage probably has his best lead acting role in probably about 20 years with his role in this film. It's quirky enough to be memorable, but you also really feel for Nicolas Cage's character because fame can be great for a while, but eventually fame turns sour, and that is a scenario that is very timely for the world in which we live today. Welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of December 4th through December 8th. 2023. And because I am running out of time for this show, I'm only going to give you the biggest films that are coming out on December 8th, which is a Friday in the year of our Lord, 2023. And there are a number of big films that are of note that I'm going to highlight for you. One of the biggest films that looks like an Oscar contender is a film that's called Poor Things. And this is the incredible tale about the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter. And this has a mix of actors in the film who are independent film mainstays as well as some others who are big budget, box office draws. They include, but are not limited to, Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, and others. But I'm not going to get into the entire roster of well-known actors who are in this film. This is a film that looks interesting, and it looks to be based on an original story. And also, Emma Stone looks particularly strange on the poster of this film. Just the, the, the fact that her hair is dark, and her eyes... So I'm interested to see how this movie is. And, of course, Emma Stone rarely disappoints when she's acting in a film alone. And the same could also be said about Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. But Poor Things is a movie I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that's subject to be released in theaters is a film called The Boy and the Heron. This is the latest from director and writer Ayo Miyazaki. This is an animated film, and this looks like it's going to be an underground uh, hit, particularly because Ayo Miyazaki is a big hit in Japan, and he has an underground following here in the United States. And for decades, he has been saying, Ayo Miyazaki has been saying, that a, a certain film in which he's come out, that he's released, will be his last film. And he is 85 years old, so The Boy and the Heron could conceivably be his final film. it's a film about a young boy named Mahito yearning for his mother who ventures into a world shared by the living and the dead. There, death comes to an end and life finds a new beginning. And apparently this is a semi-autobiographical fantasy. So this has a lot to live up to, especially considering that the story itself sounds a little bit like... Hayao Miyazaki's Academy Award winning film Spirited Away. But I'm still going to give this film a chance because if you can say anything about Ayo Miyazaki, say what you will about his animation, he he is probably the most original animation filmmaker who's alive today. And you you see that from his repertoire of movies. Of course, you know, like any filmmaker, some films are better than others, but I'm excited to see The Boy and the Herring because this could be conceivably Ayo Miyazaki's last film. Considering that he is 85 years old and still churning out not only films but animated films, it's amazing he still has the staying power that he does. So The Boy and the Herring will be a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. And I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole, until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies. This is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.